Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. I think I was very earnest, very earnest and very puritanical. But I think what kept me from being a complete pain was the fact that quite early on I got to know something about um, about the homeless in Cambridge and spent a bit of time as a student working with homeless people here. And that, that just gives you another perspective on things. It reminds you that the world is not just the rather comfortable academic environment, yes. but that um, the problems you might have completing an essay in, in time are of a rather different order from the problems that somebody might have living on the streets. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. This is the show where we delve into a well-known Christian's life, faith and testimony. And this show is brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine. That's the magazine that I edit. It's Premier Christianity magazine. This month, we have spoken to 24 different Christian leaders all about what is God up to in this time that we're living through of coronavirus, lockdown and everything else. Uh, We've asked these 24 Christian leaders what have been their lockdown highs, their lockdown lows and what might God be saying during this season. If you want to read their answers, the only place you can find it is in the print edition of Premier Christianity magazine and we have got a fantastic new offer for you. You can now subscribe to receive the magazine through your door each and every month for less than £5 a month. It's now only £4.95 a month to subscribe. So why not take advantage of that special offer? Just head to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. Today on the show, one of our freelance journalists, Catherine Lana, has been speaking to the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Rowan Williams. It's a really wide-ranging and interesting conversation. I do hope you enjoy it. It's in the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine, along with all those comments from Christian leaders about what God might be up to in lockdown. But you're going to hear the full audio version of their conversation coming up right now. I'm Catherine Lana, and I'm here today with uh, Dr. Rowan Williams. Master of Magdalen College, Cambridge, and former Archbishop of Canterbury. So thank you very much for meeting me today. You're very welcome. Um, so we're here at your home in, um, in Magdalen College as uh, the Master's Lodge. Can you tell me a little bit about what it means to live in such a place and what, it, what it's like if you could just describe the property? <laughs> Unlike a lot of Master's houses in, um, in Cambridge, the Master being the head of the college and most colleges, um, this is quite a modern house. It's a 1967 house and... Um, it's got its pluses and minuses, but there's a lot of glass in it, which means it's cold in winter. But the uh, the importance of living on the site, living as uh, really a resident in the college, means that you're in and out for meals and you see people around in the, the courtyards and in the gardens. So if you're the head of the college, I think it matters quite a lot to be on site, to be as available as possible and um, just get to know people informally in that way. And what does the role involve then in terms of what you can you can achieve and what you, you give to the college? The master's role is somewhere in between a chief executive and um, a kind of figurehead. There are things you have to do. You have to chair committees. You have to oversee the whole business of the college. You have to do what I was doing last week, which is interview candidates for fellowships. I do a little bit of interviewing for undergraduate admissions too. I've got about... Um, eight doctoral students who work with me. I do a little bit of undergraduate teaching. And then there's fundraising, just to keep the college afloat. Fundraising for bursaries for disadvantaged students, which is a big priority for us. And also for some overseas students. We're trying to increase our privilege for African students at the moment. And also fundraising for new projects like our big new library. Right. And hosting events here. I mean, it must be quite a stimulating environment. So how, how do you enjoy that that side of things it's a wonderful job actually Um, apart from daily conversation with lots of very bright people um, there's just the constant exchange with with young people as well the challenges that come with that the 
the illumination, the learning that comes from that. Yes, it's it's been a great uh, great delight being here. And soon to come to an end, then. Soon to come to an end, yes. Yes, I have a significant birthday looming up, um, and that's it. Right. So what have you been able to achieve here in terms of your own work and study, if, if you like? I've been able to finish a couple of projects, book projects, that I very much wanted to, to complete. Um, so the book which I published about 18 months ago on the history of the doctrine of Christ, I've been working on that off and on for ages and ages. I had the chance of giving a course of lectures on it here, and that prompted me to pull it all together. So that was uh, that was something I enjoyed doing. And also I finished last year something I've been working on with a friend for the last four or five years, which is the translation of a, a major a medieval Welsh collection of poetry. And you first studied in Cambridge as an undergraduate? I did, yes. I was at Christ's College at the end of the 1960s. So how do you think your younger self would view the inter- intervening years then in, in where you are now? With a bit of surprise, I suspect. Um, quite a lot of surprise. I, I don't think I'd ever really expected that I would end up at Canterbury. Um, and I'm not sure I would have expected to end up back in Cambridge either, in this sort of role. Yes. But, um, Do you ever look back on, the, on that time when you, you were first up at Cambridge? Oh, yes, frequently. <laughs> frequently. I think I was very earnest very earnest and very puritanical and very um, determined to, to do well. Um, but I think what kept me from being a complete pain, though my friends I'm sure would have views on that, was the fact that quite early on I got to know something about um, about the homeless in Cambridge and spent a bit of time as a student working with homeless people here. And that, that just gives you another perspective on things. It reminds you that the world is not just the rather comfortable academic environment, yes. but that... Um, the problems you might have completing an essay in, in time are of a rather different order from the problems that somebody might have living on the streets. Yes. And also, you um, you experienced um, a monastic life to a certain extent. You, you explored hmm. being a monk. I was thinking quite a lot about that, yes. And um, I think through my undergraduate years and some of my graduate time as well, I was thinking quite a lot about whether whether that was something I should, I should test I think I knew by that time I wanted to be, had hoped God wanted me to be, a priest, and wondered whether the monastic life was the way to do it. And so eventually, when I did prepare for the priesthood, I spent two years at Murfield at the Community of the Resurrection, which runs a theological college, and shared the monastic life for a little while there, and trained as a priest, and wondered about staying there, and then thought, well, actually, probably not, Right. And the rest is history. <laughs> so I need to ask, what, what did you find appealing about that lifestyle and what made you, what convinced you that you didn't want to pursue it any further? The appealing thing is the sense of simply giving over yourself to a rhythm of prayer, um, an ordered, dedicated life, where you put as much of your energy as possible into attending on God and receiving all that God has to give. And that you know, that has great great attraction, mm. compelling attraction. I suppose what what eventually made me think not for me was I did want to carry on with a ministry of teaching and some research. I was aware also that I and there was a bit of me that wanted to run away from um, complications and commitments and, and all the rest of it. And I think I had to come to terms with that. Mm. That it, it might have felt like a little bit of a get-out-of-jail card. Mm. And that's never a good reason for joining a religious order, as mm. all my monastic friends told me at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and when and how did you first believe, have a sense that you had a calling then? Well, almost as far back as I can remember, from when I was quite a, quite a young schoolboy. I think because I was enthused by what was said and sung and done in church, and really felt that's, that's the place where everything comes alive most. Mm. And I was so blessed with um, ministers, clergy around, who, who gave that sense of being alive and being in a larger world. Yes. 
Yes, the influence of other people. The influence of other people, yes. and the influence particularly of really imaginative priests who could open up the horizon like that. Mm. So then you moved into academia and um, became a professor at Oxford at a relatively young age. Um, and then you became a bishop in Wales. Can you tell me something of that leap mm. from, from Oxford mm. to, to Wales and what was involved there? Yes, well, having said that, I, I wanted to explore what I could do as a teacher and as a, um, as a researcher. I also, having been ordained, thought, yeah, but I'm not actually ordained just to be a teacher and researcher. So when I was first teaching in Cambridge, I also spent a few years um, doing a part-time job in a parish and council estate here, again trying to see the other side of mm. comfortable tourist Cambridge. And that never quite went away. And when I was a professor at Oxford, I, I was also a canon of the cathedral, so there was regular pastoral work involved with that, and helped a bit in the parish locally in Oxford too. So I suppose by, by the time I had the suggestion that I go back to Wales as a bishop, I was used to leading a bit of a mixed life, doing the teaching, the academic stuff, but also um, trying to keep, keep alert to the pastoral world and although I think I would have been perfectly happy to go on being a professor it was um, well suddenly a rather welcome suggestion that maybe I could I could do something completely different mm. and going back home to Wales was a wonderful thought very attractive indeed so I never lost my my roots there and the idea that I might have the chance of working in what was quite a small diocese um, in a church that was related to but rather different from the Church of England, the Church in Wales being yeah. um, separated from the state and so on. That had its attractions. I just wondered what one could do with being a bishop in terms of teaching, inspiring, leading, um, shaping a community. Mm. So how much of a wrench was it to take on the, the, the role of Archbishop of Canterbury? <laughs> It was, a, a it was a big wrench. Um, I don't know that I've ever been happier than when I was a bishop in Wales. It was a wonderful time with wonderful people around whom I deeply loved. And to move from that rather <clears throat> intimate setting, a smallish diocese with um, six other bishops who all knew each other very well and at that period all got on extremely well. We were you know, close friends. Going into the larger world and the greater exposure of Canterbury mm. didn't, didn't feel wonderful. Right. So how do you view your time now in that role of Archbishop of Canterbury, looking back? Very hard to say. Um, I'm obviously not the best judge of it. There were things which, um, which I think were worth doing, um, starting the, uh, the fresh expressions experiment in the Church of England to try and create some new congregation, new styles of congregation, and also helping to put in position what's called the Anglican Alliance, which is a federation, a network across the Anglican communion worldwide of organisations devoted to development and relief and aid and so forth. Mm -hmm. And th those two things were, I think, very well worth doing. So much of the time there was firefighting and conflict management, and um, I have no idea how well I manage that. I just have a very strong suspicion the answer is not very. <laughs> so what do you feel that you've gained personally from the experience and um, is it something that you look back on and are there regrets? I mean it's such a such a role to have mm. taken on and, and such a, a difficult task. Mm. Um, Plenty of things that I look back on I won't say daily but you know quite regularly and think did I get that right and how much damage did that do? So one of the things that, that's given you in a role like this is quite simply a sense of your own inadequacy, a sense of your dependence on the forgiveness of God. And when somebody asked me actually quite early on when I was a bishop, what have you learned so far about being a bishop? I, I said the absolute importance of believing in God. Yes. <laughs> Which, you know, you might think it's obvious, but in fact you, you discover it. Well, not way. at all. That was my next question, actually, as to how your faith was affected, because it, it, did it mean that you had greater dependence, or were you more challenged in, in how you um, believed? 
the answer has to be greater dependence. I yeah. think a, a sense that there's no way of sorting out these problems. And also, if you get trapped in thinking you've got to have the right answer to everything, then you lay a very heavy burden on yourself. And yes. you become a sort of tortured perfectionist. And if, like me, you're constitutionally indecisive to start with, that's a recipe for real disaster. <laughs> um, so, in all seriousness, yes, the sense that the church is bigger than its leadership at any point. The church is more than its quarrels and its politics. The church is a, a gift from God. It exists, as I like to say, the church is because God is. It exists because God exists. Yeah. And because God is the kind of God God is. So trying to keep that front and centre all the time, that's, that's the challenging bit, if you like, because so much of it... Um, draws you, sucks you into the detail and the conflict and and the failure. You just have to remember, well, it's it's given, it's there, it's it's heaven on earth. So, and I hope you don't mind me asking this, but do you have you had doubts? And if you have, how do you cope with them? How can we all learn from hmm. from our doubts and how to cope? Have I had doubts? Well, in a sense, yes, but. I've, I've never, I suppose, wrestled much with doubts about particular bits of the Christian faith. You know, I haven't sort of sat up all night worrying about the divinity of Christ because it's always seemed to me almost that if any of it is true, all of it makes mm. sense. That once you've made the leap of saying that God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself, actually, um, yeah. you know, <laughs> the rest, the rest is detail. The hard thing is making that leap and trusting that God is real and and the doubt, I think, is am I deceiving myself or not just am I deceiving myself about God but am I deceiving myself about myself? Yes. Um, have I really even begun on the Christian path? Those are the things that yes. keep you awake, I think. And your sense of um, humility and fallibility in, in yourself and in taking on that role. I mean, you, um, I listened to um, a recording of Desert Island Dis, I think oh. it was, when you, you were talking about it very early on mm. and um, seemed to have some sort of trepidation or um, reservation about the role. Um, but that's... Oh, right, I was. Yes. <laughs> um, but that sense of being aware of our inadequacies... Um, you mention in the book that we're, we're going to talk about a little bit, the way of Be um, St. Benedict in that we have such high expectations of our leaders mm. and we ought to give them the freedom and the space to admit that they, they mm. can't solve mm. all the problems. Um, but in today's society, that's even more of a, a message. Where, where, do we, where do we go from here? Because we do have such high expectations. Yes, we do. And for all that we think we're a permissive society, we're also quite an unforgiving one. We, yes. don't, we don't like people making mistakes. We... We, corporately, media and public, we, we leap on mistakes. And as we all know, you know, people are sacked for indiscreet remarks they made ten years ago. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it's a particularly healthy environment that we're in. Any, any sane person takes risks because you can't live without taking risks. You say things you're not sure of. You embark on relationships and jobs you're not sure of. You take risks and therefore you invite failure. You learn from that failure. You grow a bit. That's human life. Mm. Now, the idea that somehow people in public life are mysteriously exempt from all that, that they just embark on their lives with a sort of blazing clarity about their goals and a shining efficiency about their methods, well, you know, forgive me, but... <laughs> mm wake up and smell the coffee here. Yes. <laughs> um, and I think we don't do ourselves any favours as a society by fantasising in that way. And I think in, in some of the political debates we've been through in recent months, the, the longing for somebody who will come along and just tell us what to do and sort it all out, the personalisation of politics, the, um, the hitching of our political loyalties on compelling charismatic personalities... Again, we're not doing ourselves any favours. Yeah. When President Obama was elected, I remember preaching a sermon in Canterbury Cathedral, basically saying, poor bloke. Yeah. Because 
everyone was waiting for him to be the Messiah, and he must have known, and we all knew really he wasn't. Mm-hmm. I guess it was ultra tough for somebody like that. Yes. Well, I mentioned the book um, that's recently mm. been published, The Way of St. Benedict, and it gives some sort of um, history and, and context for Benedict, but it also points out the relevance and application mm. that we can make for the rule of life today. And I wondered if you could explain a little mm. bit about, your first of all, your, your interest in the subject and why you felt that now was the time to mm. publish this book. Mm. When I was uh, in my 20s, I suppose, I, I quite often visited Benedictine monasteries and talked to people there for quite a long time. My, my major influence, my spiritual director, was a Benedictine monk. Utterly, utterly wonderful and remarkable person with so much patience and warmth and wisdom. And those visits and those friendships just gave me a very strong sense of the sanity, the resourcefulness of that way of life and mm. of the rule that sustains it. So, yes, I, I, I've had a long history, you might say, with St. Benedict and the communities of St. Benedict. And because in the last 15 years or so, I'd be invited to give a number of talks here and there about the Benedictine rule. Um, Somebody suggested, well, maybe we should pull them together. And particularly, somebody invited me to talk about the the public and political significance of the rule of St. Benedict today. That made me think, well, maybe something about that wider significance of of the rule would, would be helpful. So I pulled a few things together and and threw in a couple of old articles about the Benedictine life, which are a bit more kind of scholarly, about medieval Benedictine life and about um, one of the great Benedictine scholars of the last century, just to round it out and make it sort of book-sized. <laughs> <laughs> um, so who who do you imagine will uh, appreciate this book? Who, who are you writing it for? Who do you hope will receive the message that you, you've outlined in the book, mm. which we'll go into in a little mm. bit? I suppose I was hoping that um, people who might be a bit intimidated by the idea of monasteries and monks okay. would see that this is a rule about about how to live together as human beings. And so, yes, a, a public not entirely composed of people who make retreats in Benedictine monasteries, <laughs> a Christian public mostly, but I hope not exclusively, because there are people who read the rule who don't have that kind of commitment but still learn something from it. Mm. And you said in the book as well that it's it's got a very practical nature, mm. which you hope appeals mm. today, rather than the the, the cloudy, unspecific, um, spiritual mm. message. Um, so why do you think that will appeal specifically today to people? I think there's got a lot of confusion about the spiritual life. People are very interested in spirituality and all those yes. body-mind and spirit shops right. and bookshops are full of things that will give you a... A satisfying spiritual life and I think the, the risk is that that can just a bit dribble off into the direction of making myself feel better Yes. the rule of Benedict I think like all authentic spiritual documents in Christianity and elsewhere tells you start where you are start with the people you're with Take the time it needs to find the skills of listening, be ready to learn, and don't imagine, therefore, that the life of the spirit is, to go back to a phrase I used earlier, a get-out-of-jail card, a, a quick exit from the complexities of ordinary life into something extraordinary. The spiritual life is ordinary. It's leading your ordinary, material, human life, managing your human relations with an awareness, uh, an awakeness mm. to the depth behind them. It's, you might say, it's putting a meal on the table in front of somebody with a sense of the immense significance of that act, mm. the honour given to another human being, the creative use of the things of this world. And, you know, it sounds very pretentious put like that, but it's looking into the depth of an ordinary thing, an yes. ordinary relation. And that's what's so interesting, is that it 
it speaks of simplicity. It's yes. it's very simple things to do. Yes. It's a different mindset in, and and um, belief as you're doing it. But despite that simplicity, the things that you're saying are countercultural at the moment, yes. and and would the implementation of them seems to would it, that it would involve such a sea change in society today, which is quite mm. shocking and quite worrying. Mm. So, where do we go? Well. Christianity at its best has always been countercultural. It's always challenged what what seems to make obvious sense. At the moment, what our society seems to think makes sense is bizarrely the uh, the constant spiral of material growth, in spite of living on a limited yeah. resource, um, a constant marketing of one's image to others electronically and in other ways, a constant urge to acquire security through possessions and a spirit of hectic, feverish public debate. Now, why anybody should think any of those things are desirable in themselves is very mysterious. But if if the Christian community can't stand up and say, you know something, this is mad. Mm. <laughs> no, who can? Mm. So that's that's where the rule comes in. There's one one of those Christian contributions to challenging that prevailing mindset. You're listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. This show is brought to you in association with the magazine that I edit. It's Premier Christianity magazine, the UK's leading Christian mag. If you would like to have a look at our latest issue, we've got a special offer on. You can now subscribe to the magazine. That means you get interviews like this each and every month. You get news, analysis, testimonies, all the good that God is doing in UK church and loads more. Get it through your letterbox each and every month for only £4.95. That £4.95 not only gets you the print magazine, but you get full online access as well. So why not take advantage of our special offer? Just head to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. We'll be hearing the rest of this interview between Catherine Lana and Dr. Rowan Williams right after this. Premier Christianity magazine. Are you fed up with fake news or bored of bad stories? We think it's time for something different. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. Every month, our team publishes stories of lives transformed, testimonies, miracles, healings, and loads more good news. We're here to encourage you, excite you, and keep you up to date with all that God is doing through his church. That's why we're proud to bring you a magazine that's different. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. And so there are various different things that, as I say, are sort of countercultural, as we've just mentioned. So, you know, it's, it's the stability rather than flitting around mm. everywhere and just ha- and investing in your community mm. and mm. your sense of place. But it's also that investment of time, I suppose, what you were saying earlier and, and being more mindful of mm. of each act and the gesture towards each other. Um, and anybody reading the book will be encouraged to do that. But how do we influence our community as we mm. as we try to, to put this into practice to make it a wider mm. um, impact, yes. if you like? I, I wish I had a, a simple answer to that. I don't. We do what we can, I think, is the answer. And in, in some ways, trying to, you know, to solve this in one big go is to buy into just that rather impatient and um, unreal spirit that we want to push back at. So I'd like to see people getting together to to monitor their daily lives a bit and think about their daily lives in the light of the rule. People in parishes, people in other networks who can simply perhaps commit to meeting from time to time and say, how does this measure up against? Mm. How, how does the way I'm living measure So accountability is Accountability, key, yes. yes, which is a really key thing in the rule. And it's not just in um, in that context, it's not just accountability to one another, it's finally accountability to God for, as St. Benedict puts it, for the tools he's put into our hands. And as the book indicates, I, I'm very struck by that image of the tools of good works that Benedict comes up with, the idea that we're given a set of tools, of simple resources to, to make things mm. of our environment, and we have to be careful and loving and patient and responsible about how we use them. The term rule could actually seem quite constrictive um, 
regimented mm. but actually what he has outlined is is encouraging us to be liberated perhaps very much so yes yes we think of rules as as you indicate as something that somebody else is imposing on us and we grumble and wriggle about it but the rule is well its origins i suppose as as a word lie in in a greek word which really means a standard or a measurement here's something to measure your behavior against here's something to you know something you can use as a touchstone yeah is this honest is this accountable is this is this godly um and that i think is how you can see this it's yes it's a a standard a resource something you can use to test yourself but in fact if you look at the rule yes of course it gives you regulations for how to organize the way you sing the psalms in in church which is probably quite a good idea because you can't have 20 odd people with different ways of singing yes. the songs together <laughs> so there's that practical side of it and then a lot of it is is about the discretion that authorities need in that context to make the best of everybody's gifts and everybody's perspective so the abbot the head of the monastery is supposed to be somebody who will have a clear sense of what each person's good at and be able to work with the grain of that and also he's he's encouraged to listen even to the younger members of the community because mm. they'll have things to say that will be surprising. Mm. And those those things I keep coming back to in the rule is very important that the sense that obedience to the rule is not just a kind of one-way traffic of lots of docile monks doing exactly what they're told. There's an obedience which is the sheer attention and care we give to each other. Mm. if i obey not just the abbot or the rule but obey my brother or sister what i'm doing is listening to them paying attention to them trying to respond to what they really need mm. and that's very near the heart of it you mentioned that it's 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 not just self and it's not just our, our local communities mm. but the rule can speak also to the current situation in europe which mm. is is quite a big deal. Um, quite a big deal. So can you unpack that? Well, yes, I, I wrote that I think long before we were in the throes of our current complications mm. with Europe. I I began partly from the fact that St Benedict is one of the patron saints of Europe because if there's one thing that helped to hold western Europe together between let's say about 800 and about 1500 it was the prevalence of Benedictine monasteries right everywhere in western europe a sort of international network of people whose style of life helped to shape a whole civilization now in some ways they did that in the very obvious ways they they were the conservers of learning for a long time they were the center of education until at least about 1100 when the universities begin to be created and they're also the center for um poor relief and hospitality for guests and travelers mm-hmm. so it's a really key role through, through the centuries and what was it that made the rules so resourceful in the life of europe certainly that model of an authority that is accountable to the community so that if you broaden that out you begin to see some of the roots of the western european sense that no authority is beyond question and beyond responsibility you can't just sit down with a completely unaccountable form of government mm. you have that sense that strong sense of the distinctive gift and perspective of each person so you begin to have the the discovery in the middle ages of the dignity of the individual person and quite a number of historians have said there is something that happens suddenly between about 800 and 1200 which is the emergence of a sense of the distinctiveness of each person mm. in, in Europe so th- these are things that have gone into the dna of europe and a part of what europe has to offer to the rest of the world not as a solution to all the problems or as the absolute norm for everything but these distinctive things that have swum into focus partly because 
of this widespread style of life which is communal, purposive, responsible and of course prayerful. Mm. And as again has often been pointed out the rule assumes everybody's going to be doing some basic jobs. Nobody's too important to not to be spared the washing up. <laughs> and that too, that sense of the ordinariness and the dignity of labour. Yes. Of ordinary work. Yes. So now we need to come back to today's society again mm. and the, the, the twenty four hour news, the, the franticness, the the work and leisure mm. divide. Um so many different elements to that, really. But if we could begin just by um, thinking about what, what you were saying about the, the dignity of an individual mm-hmm. and the role of the person of integrity and thoughtfulness, um, somebody of a considered response, and how people are prepared to listen to that. Mm-hmm. Um, are we, because everything is so fast, are we prepared to invest in somebody taking that time out, but also in us taking the time to listen to them mm-hmm. and... And heed what they say. It's not looking brilliant at the moment, is it? But I take some comfort from from two things. One is a very, very prosaic matter, but that is the the growing assumption in work, though sometimes people have to fight for it, that parental leave is a good thing. Mm. That you might actually need time to process a big experience, whether as a mother or as a father time to rediscover yourself in a new relationship time to adjust as if you can't pretend that these changes don't make an impact on how you, how you work and who you are so it's a small thing but i think it is one of the one of the gains of the last few decades that we've become rather more sensitive about that and then while so many people complain bitterly about what they call the politically correct environment of our day, we have just become that bit more sensitive to the voices that we ignored for a long time, voices of minorities of different mm. sorts. And while I I agree that there are forms of you know, diversity, education and promotion which seem over the top, which seem another form of anxious box-ticking, Nonetheless, we have really learned something. We have learned that we have not been listening in a Benedictine Mm. way Mm. to enough people. And to to get that on on board, that's that's no small thing. Mm. So I don't I don't despair, but I think because of, as you say, the relentlessness of the cycle, the twenty four hour news cycle and work cycle Mm. for a lot of people sense that the natural rhythms of week or month or year don't impact as much as they used to Mm. we have got a problem there and one of the things which we will have to look at as technology does more and more is of course how we reinstitute leisure how we rethink the pattern of the working week for example Mm. how we cope with the fact that a lot of people will never again have the kind of basic manual jobs that they had, what that means. Mm. And from your own perspective as well, um, you, you're held in high, high regard and appreciated for your, for your learning and um, your experience, and yet um, you too have experienced criticism for... Um, Various things, <laughs> and um, and also for for making your um, for your message perhaps not being so easy to understand for for the common person, if you like. Um, so, how do you match um, the the thoughtfulness, the providing intelligent and informed comment, and matching that against making it available for the for the mass reader, the mass mm-hmm. audience? Should should there be a, a compromise or or not? Do we need to put wisdom and um, in a separate area, if, if you see what I mean? Yes, I think so. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult question, isn't it? And I know I've often been criticised for being too, too complicated um, in things I've written or said. I, I understand the reproach. 
the only the only thing I think that makes sense of this is it's no good whether you're speaking simply or speaking complicatedly just to speak you have to earn the right to be heard you only earn the right to be heard by in some way being alongside people and showing yeah. that you've got a commitment yeah. to them and that's not easily done in the public sphere or in the public eye yeah. and I guess that's why it's always been important to me to to try to stay in touch with, um, you know, with local Christian communities, with local parishes, when I was Archbishop, trying to be as often as I could, simply visiting parishes in in Kent, mm. um, and try and get a sense of what it was really like on the ground. And it's only then that people really do listen to anything you say, whether it's simple or complicated. Yes. And there are some things that just do take time to understand, I suppose. And something I've often said about being Archbishop in a role like that, you're always talking to everybody. So an academic lecture given to one audience is picked up by some news outlet who said there's a lot of incomprehensible rubbish. Who's going to make sense of that? And you want to say, well, actually, I wasn't thinking of you. Yes. Um, but that sounds patronising, and so you have to avoid that too. It's, um, yeah, not, you're not going to win this. Yes. And also we do, as we've already said, we need individuals to take time out and to study and to um, to do things that perhaps other people can't so that we, mm. we're filtering. It's a community again. We need different thing, tasks. With people different with skills. different skills, different, um, different ways of learning and ways of speaking. And that's all right. I think the, the real disaster is if we think that there is just one simple way of saying things and if only everybody could sign up to that, we'd all be a lot happier because it ought to be simple. Mm. And it just isn't. People differ. People learn at different rates. People are fascinated by different things, drawn into different yes. things. And they need a bit of space for that. Yes, space. So you're, you're a deep thinker. Um, you can speak and read many languages, I understand. Well, read a few. Okay. Speak fewer. <laughs> All right, but more than most. Um, and you write and publish poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm listing these things, but I'm sure there's there's loads of other things that um, I don't know about. But you also comment on Russian literature. You're so um, educated on so many different levels. <laughs> How do you divide your time, as Benedict has suggested, into this rhythm of work and leisure, prayer and study, mm-hmm. um, thinking, imagination? How does your um, rhythm work? Well, it doesn't work as uh, as neatly and satisfactorily as that suggests by a long chalk. But there are things that need to be, I suppose, set set fairly clearly in the diary. The need to, well, quite simply to say the daily offices of the church, to do the morning and evening prayer. The need for me every morning to have as much of a period of silence as I can before the day begins. The need to to build in time that isn't professional and goal oriented. The need to go to the theatre with my wife and children from time to time, or whatever it may be. Yes. And it's quite hard to um, I don't know to, to formalise this, but I find the round of a day in college, <coughs> which probably have some meetings or um, student supervisions most mornings but to go and have lunch with my colleagues and just you know, relax and converse for mm. half an hour mm. that's important and I think this community of the college is quite a good environment for that. Interestingly we were originally a Benedictine monastery in the Middle Ages Oh, really? and uh, I like to think a little bit of the the ghost still hangs around. Uh, yes. Because in, in a smallish college like this, it is possible to know your colleagues reasonably well and therefore to have conversations across all sorts of different fields and to feel that there's a bit of time and space to to grow. So, yes, that's part of it. I'm fortunate enough to be in an, in an environment that has a bit of a rhythm of life to it. Um, we have a college chapel, which I go to every morning and... Um, Yes. So we're talking about um, 
living in community and that, that rhythm of life and um, an individual faith. So what about the, the, the place of the church in society, and certainly in Britain today? Um, where Should its role be different because of the way society has changed and the multicultural, multi-faith? Um, should the Church of England still have the, the position that it is? I mean, you said about um, the Church of Wales and, mm. and the difference mm. there. Um, where does the Church look for the future? It's a big question, but I, I'm not one of those who thinks that there's a, a neat strategy that will take us forward and guarantee mm. something we could call success. I think... In spite of everything, the Church in general, and the Church of England in particular, still offers to a lot of people in society the opportunity of sensing another frame of reference, another another world, otherwise known as the Kingdom of Heaven. Jesus doesn't talk about the Church in the Gospels. He does talk a lot about the Kingdom of Heaven. And the Kingdom of Heaven, it seems, is a sort of perspective on and in human life where the things you thought were obvious and not so obvious, where people who are on the outside turn out to be on the inside and vice versa, where the people you don't expect and don't at all expect turn out to be your friends and your lifesavers, and where people incomprehensibly and unreasonably forgive one another and welcome each other home. And they, you know, that's all, that's the kingdom. Mm. Now the church is there to say, that's, that's the real thing. That's the real thing. The only, the only future for the church that has integrity and, and hope is when the church just goes on saying that as its priority. Mm. So in the meantime, what does the church do? I think the church tries to be as honest as it can in, in embodying something of that frame of reference so you know the, the Cambridge City Food Bank was an initiative of three completely different churches an Anglican parish church the Roman Catholic parish church and uh, a new Pentecostal congregation mm. joining together because there was there was a need that had to be met here in terms of the poverty even in a city like Cambridge and meeting that need was a way of saying this is what matters we can't call ourselves a city or a community unless we attend to this. And nobody else seems to be doing it, so mm. the churches have to step in there. Mm. I think we, we can still do that for all the, uh, the ongoing struggles and quarrels that we get involved in. People recognise that and they say, even if they're not quite sure what to believe, they say, well, I'm glad that's there. Yes, and that's the church recognising a need and reaching out to the the, society, the, the community and the society. Um, in you mentioned in um, in talking about um, Benedict and the rule of life about cathedrals today yes, and how yes. they seem to be certainly standing um, proud, if you like, in that they mm. are um, remaining traditional and for that mm. appeal to be yes. um, attractive to younger people as as well as older. Um, surprisingly, it seems. Surprisingly. Um, and yet there's, there's also a trend now for cathedrals to um, invite in some gimmicks, if you will, of um, helter-skelters, mini-golf. Yes, yes, How do you view that? Uh, to be perfectly honest, I'm not absolutely convinced about the helter-skelters and the mini-golf. Uh, but I am very convinced about the capacity cathedrals have for inviting, for being a space, being an, un an unusual space, mm. as if... You know, we have this great thicket of modern life where we're battling our way through the thorns and the tangles, and suddenly there's there's a, a space between the trees with grass and a pool mm. and time to sit down, mm. <laughs> and the cathedral is, is that kind of space. Now, the first thing a cathedral has to do, and any church has to do, is not um, conscious and busy outreach or even food banks or whatever, the first thing it does is to say this is a place where we recognise the glory and the overwhelming attractiveness of God. Mm. And when worship in a cathedral lifts the heart, enlarges the horizon, fills, fills us with a sense of celebration and of joy, 
we're doing our bit mm. for keeping humanity human. Mm. Because every Christian will believe that honouring God is one of the things that makes us human at the end of the day. But around that, a surprising number of things can be built. I'm thinking of um, our own local cathedral in Ely, which has had, in the last couple of years, some uh, festivals of science, inviting lots of local school children in to think about the wonders of the scientific worldview. Yes. Um, there's, I, th- I think, it's already been in a couple of other cathedrals, a large, very large globe hung in the middle of the nave as a sign of our, the challenge for looking after the earth that's given into our hands. I, temperamentally, I'm happier with that sort of thing than with um, golf courses, let's say. But I'm not going to pass judgment. Yes. I think, I think though that it's essential to a cathedral's ministry that it retains the quiet space into which people can expand. Yes, yes. And if you just fill it up too busily, then you're destroying that. And that's, it becomes just like yeah, anywhere else. Again. Yes, you're you're coming to an end of, of your period here. Do you know what happens next? Not absolutely sure, but um, we're hoping to move back to Wales. Right. Um, And we'll see what happens then. My wife will continue some of her work as a a teacher and lecturer in theology, which is mostly London-based, so we won't be too far out in the wilds. But essentially, I'm just waiting to see what lies ahead. I'm not trying to fill the diary um, for the next ten years (laughs) and hoping there may be an opportunity to loosen up and unclutter slightly. Yes. I can dream. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any more projects, writing projects? One or two things I'd like to finish, but again, I'm not, I'm not being too yes. prescriptive about that. Very good. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of the magazine that sponsors this show. That's Premier Christianity magazine. If you'd like to have a look at the latest issue, it features lots of great interviews just like this one. We've got a fantastic offer for you. You can get the full magazine through your door every month and full online access for only £4.95. It's a fantastic offer. Why not head to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe and you can take us up on it. If you're a fan of the Profile podcast or the Profile radio show, you're sure to love the magazine as well. So do check it out, premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. That is all we've got time for this week. I do hope you're keeping well in these strange times that we're living in. We'll be here week in, week out with new interviews. The one that you just heard, I should say, was recorded before the lockdown took place. But we've got more interviews coming up and we will be talking to Christians who have views and opinions and analysis on exactly how the UK church and actually the global church as well should respond to coronavirus. So do stay tuned to the Profile podcast for loads more great interviews coming your way very soon. We'll see you next time.